Welcome, everyone. I think most people know me, but I'm Kevin Hughes. I'm the chair of the Humanities Department. And uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you here to our um, mostly annual Faith and Culture Lecture. We had a year off for good behavior, but uh, we're back. And we're back this year. Um, many of you will know that uh, I usually wouldn't be standing in this place. Usually this is uh, uh, the place for Dr. Michael Tomko, um, who can't be with us tonight um, due to a death in his family. And so uh, just uh, I, I know that we're all mindful of, uh, of his loss and the loss to his family. So uh, I know that we'll keep them in mind even as we gather uh, tonight. So um, let me just, the reason why we have a faith and culture, we have two annual events, if you know this or you don't know this. We, we typically sponsor a faith and culture event in the in the fall, and a Faith and Reason event in the spring. Um, it's because the Humanities Department is committed to asking the most expansive questions with the most expansive understanding of what a human being is, uh, in the fullness of, of an understanding of what a human being is, which means in relation to God, in relation to transcendence, in relation to faith. And so we try in these two lectures to sort of have a moment to reflect uh, both with experts that we invite from the outside uh, and experts that we uh, summon from our own numbers to, to reflect uh, in a public way on those kinds of questions in that sort of way. So that's what we're all about. If those of you, those of you who are not already humanities majors, you should be. Um, and feel free to, to talk to me about that. I'd be happy to explain more about what it is that we do and how we do it. Um, and this is you know, just one example of the way in which uh, we try to be present to this campus and to this community of people. Um, one other reason why we choose to have this event is because we have great desserts afterwards. Um, it's kind of a tradition now. We, we have this, uh, a way in the Department of Humanities that if, it, if we do it once and it works, then it's a tradition. So, uh, so we have a tradition, long-standing tradition now, because it's more, worked more than once, um, of having a, a time for fellowship and uh, some sweet stuff, desserts. Um, and we'll meet tonight, uh, because we're in Bartley and we're usually in Driscoll, but we're here this time. We have the atrium space out in the main, air, main hallway uh, reserve. So be sure to stop and chat and uh, uh, take something sweet um, before you uh, move on to the rest of your evening here. Um, some of you will know that one of our traditions is the faculty prepare desserts. Um, and uh, we have only, the, for, this is a sort of whet your appetite for the Faith and Reason lecture in the spring, we have our uh, award-winning faculty prepared desserts as part of our event this evening. Um, and then we bought some stuff too. So there's plenty of stuff there. Um, but come back for Faith and Reason in the spring and, and the whole fair will be arranged uh, and prepared by the faculty. Okay, so that's I think all the business, the, the sort of throat clearing that I have to do is, um, to get this thing going. The, the real work of uh, introducing our speaker this, uh, this evening will be done by one of our own students, Mary Palazzolo, who's a senior um, humanities major working on uh, I, uh, the um, certification in education as well. I particularly admire Mary's uh, warmth and generosity from the time she walked into my office and uh, decided she wanted to think about a humanities major. 
um, a real warmth and generosity of spirit combined with a real sense of poise and confidence that I've appreciated so much. Um, and so I was so pleased that Dr. Tomko uh, thought to invite her to, um, to introduce our speaker tonight. So without further ado, please welcome Mary Palazzolo to introduce our speaker. Good evening. Thank you, Dr. Hughes, and thank you, everyone, for being here. As an extension of the Humanities Department at Villanova, the Faith and Culture Lecture Series, as Dr. Hughes sort of touched on already, seeks to provoke thought and encourage dialogue about the essential questions of what it means to be human, how to live a good life, and how we ought to incorporate our beliefs within the context of our world. We're fortunate to have with us tonight a guest speaker who not only has much to share about Cardinal John Newman, a visionary in the world of Catholic education, but whose own work and experience also offers a valuable insight into this conversation. Father Philip Bochansky is a native of the Philadelphia area and was ordained an archdiocesan priest in 1999 after receiving both his bachelor's and his master's degree degrees from St. Charles Borromeo Cemetery, Sem Seminary, <laughs> important distinction, in Wynwood. In his more than 10 years of ministry, Father Phil has worked actively to promote faith formation in a variety of roles, including teaching high school theology, offering frequent guest lectures and presentations, teaching RCIA and other adult for faith formation courses in local parishes, acting as a peer reviewer for the official journal of the Catholic Medical Association, as well as co-authoring and editing two books on local church history. Our Faith-Filled Heritage, The Church of Philadelphia Bicentennial as a Diocese, as well as The Wonderful Works of God, A Sesquicentennial History of the Franciscan Sisters of Allegheny. Father Phil also belongs to the Philadelphia Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri, a society of apostolic life whose members dedicate themselves to the formation of the laity, especially young adults, through teaching, preaching, and the celebration of the sacraments. It is our privilege to be his students tonight. Please join me in welcoming the 2012 Faith and Culture speaker, Father Philip Wachanski. Seminary is a quiet place, so it's, <laughs> a, it's an easy confusion to me. Well, I'm very grateful for your, <clears throat> your warm welcome and for the kind invitation that you extended to me to speak here this evening. Um, I have to admit I was a bit shy to accept uh, when Dr. Tomko asked me to give this lecture. Um, we know each other from church primarily, and yeah, I'm much more comfortable as a preacher than in an academic kind of setting. Um, but as many of you know, Dr. Dr. Tomko can be very persuasive, so I decided to say yes. You know, as a preacher, one of my favorite things to do is to talk about the saints, particularly on their feast days, uh, when they have a chance to uh, tell the story of their life. I've often said that one, this is one of the easiest things about preaching because the saints have already done all the hard work. They've lived the life. They've gone through the martyrdom or written the extraordinary books or made the heroic sacrifices of time and energy in the service of the needy or they fought the good fight of penance and prayer or any of those other wonderful things that saints do. They've done the work. The preacher just needs to tell the story. And when the holy person in question is blessed John Henry Newman, who, by the way, is a member of my own religious family, the Congregation of the Oratory, and so a sort of great uncle to me, um, then what a story there is to tell. Because as we shall see, John Henry Newman was a rather complicated man and not an automatic saint. It's not his feast day today, 
Uh, but it is worth mentioning that the day on which the church celebrates him, October the 9th, was selected not because it's the day of his death, that's usually the case when the church picks a feast day, uh, but they chose it because it marked a crucial turning point on his personal path of faith. It was the day in which he left one way of life behind in order to begin another almost completely separated from family, friends, and outward means of support, depending on God and the truth that God had revealed to him over long years of experience. The path by which he got there was his own, but it has a great deal to teach us about our own journey of faith as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Every good story and every path worth walking ought to start at the beginning. Born in London in 1801 in the financial district known as the City, John Henry Newman was the oldest of six children. His family belonged to the Church of England, although they were not particularly religious, and it wasn't until he was a teenager that he began to take spirituality seriously. Due to a change in his family's financial situation, it became necessary for him to spend the summer uh, when he was 15 years old at his boarding school. There, he became close with one of the schoolmasters who encouraged him to read books of evangelical sermons and Calvinist theology, as well as some of the works of the fathers of the church. Newman also experienced a serious illness, which scared him, forced him to turn to God for help, and in his words, made him a Christian. He saw this summer as his first great conversion. He said, it's difficult to realize or imagine the identity of the boy before and after August 18, 1816. Newman left this summer experience convinced that God wanted him to be holy and that he was to put this holiness into practice. He was also certain of the fact, although he didn't quite know the reason for it at the time, that God intended for him to live a celibate life. Newman matriculated at Oxford in 1817, becoming an undergraduate at Trinity College toward the end of the spring term. He was often lonely as he disapproved of the partying lifestyle of many of his classmates, and he spent nine or 10 hours a day studying. He worked very hard to pass his examinations, but in the end, he didn't do as well as he had hoped. He found that the apparent failure taught him a valuable lesson about working for recognition in the eyes of other people rather than working for God. He left school for a while in 1819, returning in February of 1821 to study theology at Oriel College in preparation for ordination in the Church of England. Newman was ordained a deacon on June the 6th, 1824, and an Anglican priest on May 29, 1825. In contrast to many of his classmates, who sometimes seemed to regard ordination as simply a career move, Newman took it quite seriously, as his diary entry for the day of his ordination as a deacon attests. It is over. I am thine, O Lord. I seem quite dizzy and cannot altogether believe and understand it. At first, after the hands were laid on me, my heart shuddered within me. The words forever are so terrible. As a cleric, Newman became involved in pastoral ministry, first at the parish of St. Clement's in a relatively poor neighborhood just outside the center of Oxford. 
He immersed himself in the parish at once, visiting a third of the parish households within the first week and the entire parish by the end of the summer. When he returned to Oriel as a tutor in January 1826, he felt that his ordination had given him a special responsibility to be not only a teacher, but a spiritual guide for the undergraduates who were assigned to him. By all accounts, he took to this task vigor vigorously with a zeal that not all of his students appreciated. He was especially critical of the so-called gentlemen commoners, sons of wealthy families whose places at Oxford were awarded based on their ability to pay rather than on their academic qualifications. And he felt that their hard drinking, easy living ways were a bad influence on the rest of the college. Not looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> he called these young men of birth, wealth, or prospects the scandal and ruin of the place and his efforts to reform the system to deal with these, quote, incurables, eventually put him at odds with the provost of Oriel and led to his not being assigned any more undergraduates to tutor by the summer of 1830. In March 1828, Newman had succeeded Father Edward Hawkins as the vicar of St. Mary's, the university church. In this position, he was responsible for delivering the university sermons formal addresses given for regular mandatory gatherings of professors and students, and these won him great acclaim. He also had regular pastoral duties, including giving what came to be known as his parochial and plain sermons. These were, as their name implies, less ornate, rhetorically speaking, but the power of his preaching was in the content, if not the style, of the sermon. He was convinced that in the modern day, as he says, we want rousing. We want the claims of duty and the details of obedience set before us strongly. Believers had no excuses, he believed, for not following through on their vocation to discipleship. For the Lord was no less generous with his gifts in the 19th century than he had been in the first. Here's a quote from one of his sermons. We dwell in the full light of the gospel and the full grace of the sacraments, we ought to have the holiness of the apostles. There is no reason except our own willful corruption that we are not by this time walking in the steps of St. Paul or St. John and following them as they followed Christ. What a thought is this. Do not cast it from you, my brethren, but take it to your homes, and may God give you grace to profit by it. This image of light, the full light of the gospel, which we heard him talk about in this quotation, was an important one in the life of John Henry Newman, perhaps never more so than during the winter of 1833. By that time, as I said, he'd been relieved of most of his duties at Oriel College and had turned his attention to studying the church fathers and writing books, as well as poems for a column in the British magazine published by his friend H.J. Rose. Called the Lyra Apostolica, the Apostle's Harp, this column was to be a kind of surreptitious evangelization, bringing out the truths of faith in simple and beautiful ways through verse rather than through controversy, getting people to read theology almost before they realized what they were doing. At Christmas in 1833, Newman took his first real vacation in many years, journeying with friends to Portugal and then around the Mediterranean, where for the first time he saw large numbers of Catholic and Orthodox living as it were in their natural habitat. 
He was impressed by the piety of the people he saw, but he was unsure how to reconcile it with what he believed to be the corruption of the Catholic Church. And he felt that the answer would be to rejuvenate the Church of England when he returned in order to recapture the spirit of the primitive Church of the Apostles. In mid-April, Newman parted company with his friends and made a side trip to Sicily with a hired servant. He hiked for several days to Taormina and then to Mount Etna, where he was forced to spend the night in squalid conditions and, contra and contracted typhoid fever. Over the next couple of weeks, he became seriously ill, and by the second week of May, it was clear that he could possibly die. His fever finally broke on May 13th, and a week later, he was able to walk around. He left Fort Palermo on May 25th, convinced that God had some work for me to do in England, and that the devil had tried to get him out of the way before he could be, quote, a means of usefulness. He had to wait three more weeks before he could set sail for home, and finally embarked on June 13th. On board ship, he composed his most famous poem titled, The Pillar of the Cloud. The name refers to the fiery column of cloud that went before the Israelites through the desert for 40 years during the Exodus. However, the poem is much better known by its opening line. Lead kindly light, amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. The night is dark, and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. I loved the garish day, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years. So long thy power hath blessed me, sure it still will lead me on, or moor and fen, or crag and torrent, till the night is gone. And with the morn, those angel faces smile, which I have loved long since, and lost a while. We see in this poem a glimpse of Newman's trust in God to reveal the divine will by revealing the truth. For Newman, light and truth were intimately connected. If you allow me to jump ahead for a moment, in the 1870s, Father Newman wrote instructions for his burial, including his epitaph. Ex umbris et imaginibus in veritatem, it read, when it was finally inscribed some 20 years later, from shadows and images into the truth. If false images were in synonymous with shadows, then truth meant light for Newman, and this poem written as a confession of praise and thanks for being delivered from such a grave illness, is a testimony to Newman's confidence that the light of truth would always lead him in the right direction. To follow the light of truth is not always easy, of course. Notice what Newman says in the first stanza of the poem. I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. To walk with someone who's carrying a torch or a lantern requires a particular type of closeness because the source of light only illuminates a certain radius. Clearly, if a person falls too far behind, he'll be in the dark again. But the same is true if he gets too far ahead. The trust in the light of truth which is at the heart of Newman's outlook must be humble, willing to move at the pace that God decides, 
because God carries the light. Newman himself admits that this is not easy. I was not ever thus, he admits. I love to choose and see my path. And spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Blessed John Henry de dedicated huge amounts of work and energy to trying to help others to see the light of truth that he had found. But he realized that not everyone found the truth so readily and that not everyone arrived at it in the same way. Still, he knew that the one indispensable condition for receiving the light of truth is to be open to it. And so he composed a prayer that he recommended to those who were inquiring. O oh my God, I confess that you can enlighten my darkness. I confess that you alone can. I wish my darkness to be enlightened. I do not know whether you will, but that you can and that I wish are sufficient reasons for me to ask, what you at least have not forbidden my asking. I hereby promise that by your grace which I am asking, I will embrace whatever I at length feel certain is the truth, if ever I come to be certain. And by your grace, I will guard against all self-deceit, which may lead me to take what nature would have, rather than what reason approves. Amen. So we can say this much about the search for truth that is common to John Henry Newman and to all of us. But we see his particular heroic virtue in the sacrifices that he had to make on his own to respond to the truth once he had perceived it in his own life. As often happens, it came to him from a source that he did not expect. Once he had seen it, he had a decision to make, one that would change his life forever. Since the early 1830s, as I've mentioned, Newman had been reading the works of the church fathers, those bishops and priests of the first five or six centuries of Christianity who wrote and preached to address the major doctrinal issues of the early church. Newman had taken up this study with a view to recapturing the spirit of what he called primitive or apostolical Christianity. He published a number of books as well as what he called Tracts for the Times, short, clear pamphlets that were available very inexpensively and that discussed important theological issues from this same perspective, recapturing primitive Christianity. In the tracts, he proposed that the apostolical church founded by the Lord Jesus still existed in the world today, but was not to be found in the visible Catholic church since too many corruptions and superstitious additions to doctrine and practice had crept in over the years. Neither could it be seen in the Lutheran and Calvinist Protestant churches, he said, which had fallen away into heresy by denying the priesthood and the sacraments at the time of the Reformation. Instead, Newman's idea was that the Church of England existed as a middle way, what he called a via media, between these two, road, these two wrong roads, and was a true branch of the one Church of Christ founded on the Apostles. At this time, Newman was also working on a series of books on the ecumenical councils of the early church, and by the summer of 1839 had begun to study the fourth ecumenical council, which met in 451 in Chalcedon, now a district of metropolitan Istanbul. You'll have to forgive me if I make a short digression back 1400 years or so to explain what Newman was reading about. It'll be worth it. 
In 431, the Council of Ephesus had met to debate the heresy of Nestorius, who claimed that Our Lady could be called the mother of Jesus, the man of Nazareth, and even the mother of the Christ, the man who was anointed, but that she could not be called the mother of God, because a divine being cannot be born in time from a creature. The Council of Ephesus taught instead that the incarnation means that the Word of God has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and that he unites these two natures in his one divine person. This doctrine is known as the hypostatic union. Thus, everything that is done by or happens to the Lord Jesus in his human nature is done by or happens to the divine person, the Son of God, including being born. So, Our Lady can truly be called the Mother of God. Very soon after the Council of Ephesus, people began to misunderstand how one person can have two natures, especially when one of those natures was divine and the other human. Surely they thought either the human nature would forever besmirch the divine, or, what seemed more likely, the divine nature would overwhelm and absorb the human, like the ocean swallowing up a drop of honey. This confusion led to the theory of monophysitism from the Greek words for single and nature. The Emperor Marcion and Anatolius, Patriarch of Constantinople, convened the Council of Chalcedon in October 451 to deal with this new heresy which had been promoted by a monk named Eutyches. A letter from Pope Leo the Great was sent to the Council, called the Tome of Leo. It stressed that the Incarnation meant that the two natures of Christ were united, quote, without confusion, without division, without change, and without separation. Hearing the letter, the assembled bishops exclaimed that Peter has spoken through Leo. This is what all of us believe. This is the faith of the apostles. The tome was enthroned on a sumptuous chair as if the Pope himself was present, and Marcion took the opportunity, now that the matter was quickly and efficiently settled, to move on to other business, such as deposing unruly bishops and establishing rules of order for monks, nuns, and parish priests. The problem was that this was an ecumenical council, named for the Greek oikumene, or household, meaning the whole inhabited world. But not all of the bishops who were invited to the council were able to arrive on time. Bishops from Ethiopia, Egypt, and Armenia came to Chalcedon to find that the council had begun its deliberations without them. And they were put out by the speed at which the council fathers accepted the definition of Leo as the final word. They felt that the emperor was too pushy, that the pope was exerting too much influence over the proceedings, especially because it was indirect influence. He himself wasn't even physically present. And in the end, they rejected the definition of Chalcedon, not so much because they didn't believe the theology behind it, but because they didn't agree with the politics and the logistics by which the council had arrived at it. So, Newman saw, going into the Council of Chalcedon, there were two parties, the Orthodox Catholic believers and the Monophysite heretics. But coming out of the council, there were three groups, the Orthodox believers, the heretics, and the schismatics, those who had separated themselves from communion with the church because of their disagreement at the council and the way that it worked. Newman also saw that with respect to the church at the time, there was no practical difference 
between the way that the heretics and the schismatics were regarded by those who remained true to the faith. Both parties were, re were regarded as having left the true way, as having put themselves outside ecclesiastical communion and having broken with the Church of Christ. This was a real problem, both intellectual and moral, for Newman. Until this point, he had been able to maintain in his own mind and conscience the idea that the Church of England was a true branch of the primitive Church of Christ. Of course, there was the unavoidable historical fact of Henry VIII's break with the Church of Rome in 1534, of the so-called English Reformation. But that had been a necessary separation from a Roman institution that had become corrupt, Newman felt, that one that had separated itself from the one that had itself separated from the true apostolic, apostolical church. And at any rate, Newman felt that the separation had been political, not theological. In his mind, although people like Thomas Cranmer, Henry's Archbishop of Canterbury, had had Lutheran theological opinions, Henry VIII's own move had always been political, not theological, schismatic, not heretical. Now Newman had to consider for the first time in his life, that there might be no real difference between the two, that the schism of Henry might have had the same effect as the heresy of Luther. In a letter that he wrote to a friend at the end of August 1839, we see how deeply this matter affected him. I must confess, he writes, it has given me a stomach ache. You see, the whole history of the Monophysites has been a sort of alterative, it does certainly come upon one that we are not at the bottom of things. It is no laughing matter. I will not blink the question, so be it. Only there is an uncomfortable vista opened which was closed before. I am writing upon my first feelings. Newman spent the next six years trying to work out for himself the implications of this question which had given him such a stomach ache. He began by writing one more pamphlet known as Tract 90, titled Remarks on Certain Passages in the 39 Articles, in which he tried to interpret various parts of the Anglican statement of faith in a more primitive Christian, which is beginning for him to mean nearly Catholic, framework. The violent opposition that this effort received from Anglican bishops across the country convinced him that his opinions were now much different from theirs. Since the beginning of his ministry as vicar of St. Mary's, Newman had also been responsible for a suburban village called Littlemore. As his doubts increased, Newman began to spend more time at Littlemore, and in February 1842 he moved there for good, forming a kind of semi-monastic community with Anglican friends in the same situation as himself. By early 1843, he wrote to a friend that he was convinced that the Roman Catholic Church is, quote, the one and only fold of the Redeemer. And in September, he resigned his post as vicar of St. Mary's. He spent, he spent all of 1844 living as a layman, praying for guidance, studying, and writing one of his masterpieces, the Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. This work was as much for himself as for others, an effort to enumerate the signs by which it is possible to recognize authentic growth and development in doctrine and religious practice. By using these signs, he believed, he and others could see 
that the Roman Catholic Church of today had grown organically from its origins in the group of apostles and disciples gathered around the Lord, and that what Newman once mistook for things added on were in fact latent in the church from the beginning. When Newman was finally received into full communion with the Catholic Church on October 9, 1845, he claims that he professed the truths of faith with the greatest ease that not any one of them was a trial to him. Writing years later, he described the moment of his reception as being like coming into port after a rough sea, and said that since the time of his becoming Catholic, he had been in perfect peace and contentment and never had one doubt. How do we explain this change in his outlook, this transformation from the stomach ache to peace of mind? And how is he able to persevere through six years worth of soul searching to arrive at this point on his path? Newman wrote in depth of his experience of coming to Catholic faith in his spiritual autobiography, which he called his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, the explanation of his life. Published in 1865, it formed a response to critics who suggested that his conversion had been a sham. A line from chapter 5 of this book is actually quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the section on faith and understanding and helps to clear up a misconception that many people have as they're trying to live the faith and grow in holiness. It's worth quoting in some length. Many persons, he writes, are very sensitive of the difficulties of religion. I am as sensitive of them as anyone, but I have never been able to see a connection between apprehending these difficulties, however keenly, and multiplying them to any extent, and on the other hand, doubting the doctrines to which they are attached. 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt, as I understand the subject. Difficulty and doubt are incommensurate. A man may be annoyed that he cannot work out a mathematical problem of which the answer is or is not given to him, without doubting that it admits of an answer, or that a certain particular answer is the true one. This ability to distinguish realistically and humbly between difficulties and doubts is at the heart of one's ability to persevere, both in seeking the truth and in doing what is right. Too often, I think, a person gives up on faith or on virtue because he finds it difficult to follow through with a particular commandment or to accept a particular obligation or make a particular sacrifice associated with the vocation God is inviting him to, or finds it difficult to pray in the midst of emotions like grief, anxiety, or physical or mental pain and fatigue. In the midst of such struggles, which are real, it's easy, even tempting, simply to say, I've lost my faith, or I doubt that God still loves me, or I don't know what to believe or how to believe anymore rather than to say what a person really means, which tends to be something along the lines of, living my faith has suddenly become a great deal more difficult than I was prepared for, and I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. In such circumstances, Newman's admonition can seem a bit too insightful at first, and quite challenging. But if we learn to take it seriously, as he clearly did, it can help us to stop wasting time with rationalizations and actually get down to the serious work of growing in our relationship with God and our understanding of faith. 
in reality, we have no time to waste. We must not delay in doing good, for death will not delay its time. This last line did not originate with Newman, but it and others like it would have been on his lips many times in the second half of his life, because it comes from a priest whom he grew to know and love very deeply, St. Philip Neri. Although Newman was unsure at first whether God intended him to become a priest in the Catholic Church, by late 1846, he and his friends were sent to Rome to study for the priesthood. On the way, they investigated the possibility of joining various religious orders and settled on the Congregation of the Oratory, founded by St. Philip in 1575. The Oratory comprises secular priests who live a stable community life in one house for their whole lives. And Newman found it to be the one best suited to his and his companions' varied talents and interests and having the most in common with the life that they had been living up to that point. At Christmas 1847, Pope Pius IX sent the newly ordained Father Newman home to Birmingham, then as now the second largest city in England, with authority to found oratories there and elsewhere in the country, and to adapt the community rule as necessary to the conditions in modern England. The Birmingham Oratory was founded in early February 1848, and following St. Philip's simple plan of life, the Oratorians served the local populace through familiar preaching of the Word of God, reverent celebration of the sacraments, particular attention to confessions and spiritual direction, and outreach to young people through education and what we would call today young adult ministry. Father Newman faced many challenges in these early days, more from inside his house than from outside. Some of his first companions, led by Father Frederick Faber, who was waiting for Newman when he returned from Rome to join the young community, felt that their talents and energy were being wasted in Birmingham, where mo much of the Catholic population consisted of poor Irish immigrants, factory workers, and domestic servants. By the turn of the year, Faber and half the community had left to form a new house in London, now situated on the Brompton Road in the fashionable South Kensington district, while Newman remained to minister to his little flock in Brum. One of the most fascinating books among the more than 40 volumes that Newman produced in his lifetime was written, he tells us, for the sake of these working class parishioners at the Birmingham Oratory and the untold numbers just like them who perhaps form the major part of the body of Christ. Called an essay in aid of a grammar of ascent, it is unique in Newman's body of work. For one thing, it was 20 years or more in the making. It teased me, he wrote. I felt I had something to say upon the subject, yet whenever I attempted, the sight I saw vanished, plunged into a thicket, curled itself up like a hedgehog, or changed colors like a chameleon. I have a succession of commencements, perhaps a dozen, each different from the other, which came to nothing. Still, he pressed on with his work, convinced that he would be meeting a genuine need. I had felt it on my conscience for years, he wrote, that it would not do to quit the world without doing it. Once he finally found the key to putting his thoughts in order, he sat down and wrote it as quickly as possible. And it shows, as the essay begins without any sort of introduction, and it ends without any real summation or conclusion. Now, what was so urgent? What inspired or drove him to write this deeply philosophical and insightful look at the concepts of knowledge and choice? 
he wanted to defend, he said, the right of ordinary people to mean what they said when they claim to be certain about what they believe. If we could go back and look around the Birmingham Oratory Church and observe the members of Father Newman's congregation in the 1850s and 1860s, we would quickly realize that most of them probably couldn't explain theological concepts like transubstantiation or the processions of the Trinity if the point were put to them. Remember, this is the mid-19th century. In reality, many of the parishioners were illiterate and literally couldn't spell transubstantiation. But seeing the way that they attended Mass, observing the reverence with which they received Holy Communion and knelt in prayer at benediction, we would also quickly realize that just about every one of them was absolutely certain of the fact of transubstantiation, that the real presence of Christ subsisted under the appearance of bread and wine. Whether they could give a theologian's explanation or not, they would not be shaken in their certitude, no matter how much their better educated neighbors might sneer at their supposedly simple faith. Great numbers of men, Newman writes in his essay, must be considered to pass through life with neither doubt nor, on the other hand, certitude on the most important propositions which can occupy their minds, but with only a simple assent. In other words, lots of people don't worry too much about the theology behind the doctrines they accept. Such is the state of mind of multitudes of good Catholics, he goes on, perhaps the majority who live and die in a simple, full, firm belief in all that the church teaches because she teaches it. In his essay, though, Newman set out to show how it is possible to say, I am certain about the truths of faith, insisting that such certitude is really necessary for those who are taking discipleship seriously. This certitude comes, Newman explains, not merely from the logical explanations of doctrine and dogmas, but from what he calls inference a compiling of experience that becomes more and more solid over time. By paying attention to the ways that God is working in our daily lives, he insists, we infer, from the Latin inferre, to carry in, and we gather together a number of seemingly separate experiences of God's identity and his work. By viewing all these experiences together, Newman says, we can acquire a more and more complete picture of God and of divine providence. And it is about this compilation of experiences that we have certitude. Newman calls this compilation the illative sense. Its name comes from the fact that Latin is sometimes unnecessarily difficult. And so the past participle of ferre is not ferratus, but latus. I don't know why, it just is. And therefore, inferre becomes illatus, so the illative sense. He describes it like this. The best illustration of what I hold is that of a cable, which is made up of a number of separate threads, each feeble, yet together as sufficient as an iron rod. An iron rod represents mathematical or strict demonstration. A cable represents moral demonstration, which is an assemblage of probabilities, separately insufficient for certainty, but when put together, unbreakable. Now, there are times in life 
when iron rod certitude is necessary, of course, when the kind of knowledge one is seeking comes from empirical data and, exp and exposition and logic. The science lab and the engineering school need iron rod certitude most of the time. In theology, too, there is a place for it. St. Thomas Aquinas' exposition of the faith in major systematic works, like the Summa Theologiae, springs to mind. He builds his arguments up point by point in a logical sequence. Newman's point here is that the certainty that is arrived at with the illative sense, the kind that he compares to a cable, the kind that comes from a compilation of experience, is no less real and not second class. Moreover, it should not be dismissed out of hand or subject to extra skepticism simply because it is personal. Now surely, if a person were to take one religious experience in isolation, one good feeling on retreat, one seemingly providential event, one moment of inspiration while reading the scriptures, that one experience seems very small indeed, very feeble, as Newman admits. But when he or she is able to consider a long chain of experiences, even a lifetime of experiences, and see that they are all coherent with one another, although they may be different on the surface, then when they are all taken together, they lead to a certitude which is strong and robust. At times, Newman suggests this is exactly the kind of certitude that is required precisely because it is flexible and because it speaks to the heart. A man who said, I cannot trust a cable, I must have an iron bar, he writes, would in certain given cases be un irrational and unreasonable. So too is a man who says, I must have a rigid demonstration, not a moral demonstration of religious truth. The tricky part is understanding the balance between flexibility on the one hand, that personal understanding of why we believe what we believe, and faithfulness to truth, which is bigger than any one person, which has an objective quality to it, on the other. Newman has been talking about arriving at certitude through accumulated experiences, which are necessarily personal and private. But this raises the issue of whether the content of faith about which a person is certain is objective or subjective. Newman himself recognizes this challenge. Everyone who reasons is his own center, he writes. And no expedient for attaining a common measure of minds can reverse this truth. But then the question follows, is there any criterion of the accuracy of an inference? Now, not surprisingly, he finds and explains just such a criterion. In fact, he identifies a particular gift from God which is bestowed on human beings in order to guarantee the proper functioning and the perfection of the illative sense. This gift is the conscience, which Newman calls our great internal teacher of religion. It is an intensely intimate kind of thing, as Newman explains. Conscience is a personal guide, and I use it because I must use myself. I am as little able to think by any mind but my own as to breathe with another's lungs. Conscience is nearer to me than any other means of knowledge. And as it is given to me, so also it is given to others and being carried about by every individual in his own breast, and requiring nothing besides itself, it is thus adapted for the communication to each separately 
of that knowledge which is most momentous to him individually. For Newman, this idea of conscience as the communicator of the truth was paramount. Seeing it as much more than the personal power to deliberate and choose all by oneself, Newman called the conscience a messenger of God and the aboriginal vicar of Christ. And he recognized it as a living presence in the soul. And whether one accepts this characterization or not makes all the difference in a person's attitude toward the conscience and in whether he follows its lead or instead rebels against it. When men advocate the rights of conscience, Newman lamented to the Duke of Norfolk in 1875, they in no sense mean the rights of the creator, but the right of thinking, speaking, writing, and acting according to their judgment or their humor without any thought of God at all. To claim that the conscience is one's private possession, of course, goes against the very meaning of the word. Conscience comes from the Latin roots conscire, to know together. As the vicar of Christ, conscience requires us to think with the mind of Christ, to act in accord with the commandments and the principles of right reason, which come from God as their source. We know the truth together with God. Conscience also demands that we think and act according to the teachings handed on by Christ through the church. We know the truth together with one another. All of this is to say what the church has always taught, that the right to follow one's conscience implies the responsibility to form one's conscience correctly, to make sure that it is working properly. Newman uses a pleasing illustration to show how all these principles work together. Picture a clock, he says, and notice that there are two important parts to it that allow us to know the correct time. One is the bell that chimes the hours, which everyone around can hear. The other part is much less visible, but even more important. It's the regulator inside the clock that when it is tuned properly, keeps the works in proper order. If the regulator isn't working properly, then the bell sounds just as beautiful, but it makes the clock useless as a timepiece. Still, when this unfortunate event occurs, Newman says, we do not dispense with clocks because from time to time they go wrong and tell untruly. A clock, organically considered, may be perfect, yet it may require regulating. The sense of certitude, Newman says, may be called the bell of the intellect because it gives us clear indications of the presence and action of God in our lives. We've seen that this certitude comes primarily from the illative sense, from the accumulation of experiential knowledge of God and the truth of faith. But it's possible, Newman says, for a person to misinterpret his experience. In such a case, the conscience, the messenger of God, acts as the regulator. That it strikes when it should not, Newman writes, is a proof that the clock is out of order not proof that the bell will be untrustworthy and useless when it comes to us adjusted and regulated from the hands of the clockmaker. At times, of course, the conscience itself may be mistaken, whether by difficulties misinterpreted as doubts or a lack of proper information or an unwillingness to consult and try to think with the church. Our conscience, too, may be said to strike the hours and will strike them wrongly unless it be duly regulated for the performance of its proper function. 
proper formation of the conscience provides this due regulation so that it can provide, in Newman's words, the loud announcement of the principle of right in the details of conduct and may in turn properly regulate and guide our assent to the truth of faith gathered by experience. Father Newman spent 42 years in Birmingham as an oratorian, writing, lecturing, and preaching, always with an eye to the formation of the people entrusted to his pastoral care and the proper formation of their consciences. His concern was not restricted to Catholics. Through a series of lectures with titles like Discourses Addressed to Mixed Congregations, delivered in Birmingham in 1849, and Certain Difficulties Felt by Anglicans in Catholic Teaching, given in London the following year, Newman also reached out to those outside the Catholic communion who were facing the same kind of questions he once had to answer. Due to a series of very public misunderstandings of Newman's position on certain points of Catholic doctrine, which unfortunately were followed up by private scheming among some other Catholic leaders in England, Father Newman spent most of the 1860s marginalized and all but silenced by suspicions of unorthodox teaching. Late in his life, however, vindication came in an extraordinary way. In 1879, Pope Leo XIII named Newman a cardinal. In fact, he called him il mio cardinale, my cardinal. It was not easy, the Pope admitted. They said he was too liberal, but I determined to honor the church in honoring Newman. Pope Leo allowed Father Newman the double privilege of remaining a simple priest, it was more customary for cardinals to be bishops, and of continuing to reside at the oratory rather than to move to Rome. He continued to write and teach for several more years. In fact, his last article was published when he was 83 years old. Most of all, he continued to be engaged in the life of the parish, church, and school until shortly before his death on August 11, 1890, at the age of 89. On the day of his funeral, thousands of mourners lined the road between the oratory church and the community cemetery some eight miles away. Around the centennial of Newman's reception into the Catholic Church, that is, in 1945, many essays and talks raised the issue of promoting John Henry Newman as a candidate for canonization. The process was officially begun in 1958 in the Archdiocese of Birmingham, and the popes often expressed personal interest in seeing it brought to a successful completion. Newman was declared venerable in 1991, and following the miraculous healing of Deacon Jack Sullivan of the Archdiocese of Boston, John Henry Newman was beatified by Pope Benedict XVI on September 19, 2010. The beatification took place at Cofton Park, just over the hill from the community cemetery and just a few miles from the Birmingham Oratory. And following the Mass, the Holy Father visited the Oratory and the rooms in which Blessed John Henry had lived and worked. In addition to the Birmingham Oratory itself, many shrines and monuments have been erected over the years to honor the memory of this important saint in the making. Perhaps one that he would be most proud to see surviving is not one that springs first to mind, but it has something to offer for our reflection tonight. In the mid-1850s, as the oratory was getting out established and Father Newman was facing personal difficulties from various directions, he was asked to take on yet another daunting task, this time at the service of Catholics in Ireland. 
Newman was instrumental in laying out both the philosophical and the practical blueprints for the Catholic University of Ireland, now known as University College Dublin, UCD, which is still the largest institution of higher education in that country. With its four faculties of philosophy, theology, science, and medicine, Newman intended that the new university would be a Catholic alternative on a par with Oxford and Cambridge, where matriculating students still had to profess the Anglican Articles of Religion. With personal funds received from generous friends, he built the University Church, which was dedicated on Ascension Thursday, the 1st of May, 1856. The following Sunday, Newman preached a sermon there in which he expressed his hopes for his students and their professors. It will not satisfy me, he said, what satisfies so many, to have two independent systems, intellectual and religious, going at once side by side and only accidentally brought together. It will not satisfy me if religion is here and learning there, and young men converse with learning all day and lodge with religion in the evening. Devotion is not a sort of finish given to the sciences. I want the intellectual layperson to be religious and the devout ecclesiastic to be intellectual. It ought not to satisfy us either. We ought not to be satisfied with ourselves, nor with each other, nor with this fine institution, if we find that learning and devotion, intellectual formation and growth in holiness are only coincidentally related and only occasionally found together. The work that is entrusted to us, personal acquisition of virtue and the formation of conscience, is far too serious, and I'm sure that you are far too busy, for it to be relegated to a private pursuit attended to only on Sunday mornings and in whatever free time may be carved out in the midst of other duties. For Blessed John Henry, though, the pursuit of perfection is not at all separate from other duties. In fact, he was convinced that growth and holiness was to be found precisely in the manner with which we embrace our daily tasks. Speaking to his fellow oratorians in September 1856, he outlined for them what he called a short road to perfection. Much shorter than this talk has been, I admit. When he uses the word perfect, Newman took for granted that his oratorians knew their Latin. Perfect comes from per facere, which means to do something all the way through. In order to be perfect in this sense, a person doesn't have to take on lots of additional devotions or to become extraordinarily pious overnight. Rather, this kind of perfection is to be found by careful, steady, persevering attention to the tasks which are set before a person day by day. Newman says, he then is perfect who does the work of the day perfectly, and we need not go beyond this to seek for, for perfection. We are perfect if we do perfectly our duties. And here's his short road. First, do not lie in bed beyond the due time for rising. Give your first thoughts to God. Make a good meditation. Do the work of the day, whatever it is, diligently and for God. Eat and drink to God's glory. Say the rosary well, be recollected, keep out bad thoughts. Make your evening meditation well, examine yourself daily, go to bed in good time, 
and you are already perfect. There are perhaps few figures in modern church history so unique, so distinctively themselves, as blessed John Henry Newman. His journey toward the truth, his personal growth and holiness, is just that, personal and peculiar to his own historical circumstances, his own personality and intellect, his own gifts and talents, his own tenacity and determination. On the surface, it seems that he is a one-off type of saint. Is it possible for us to imitate him? It has to be, otherwise the church's process of beatification and canonization is pointless. The church does not hold up the servants of God simply for us to marvel at them, much less for us to gawk at their miracles. She places them before the whole world precisely because they are to be models, as well as challenges and encouragements for each of us in our own efforts to acquire the virtues which they personify. Blessed John Henry knew the value of such models, and he himself can be a model for us as we walk our own path of faith. Even here in the university, perhaps especially here in the university, we have a great deal to learn from a saint who, not in spite of his great intellect but because of it, kept his approach to the truth very simple, very practical, very real. To admit that we are having difficulties, and to work on them, rather than dress them up as doubts that seem more respectable. To acknowledge that we see the truth and to follow it, even when it involves great personal sacrifice. These things require effort that is only possible if we are being honest with ourselves. They require a commitment to perfection that goes beyond simply talking about it and sees things through to the end but they are only possible if we are committed to a lifelong process of experiential contact with God and to the reflection and meditation that allows that accumulated experience to grow into certain knowledge of God's goodness and of his plan for us. Blessed John Henry has done the hard work. We just have to remember the story. He learned these lessons through his long personal journey and now that his path of faith is complete, he is in a position to share his wisdom with us as a powerful intercessor and guide as we walk, each of us, our own path. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father Philip. Uh, we have some time for yeah, questions. It didn't take as long as I thought it would. <laughs> That's good. So. Um, I know that like the, the situation is really different now, and like the reasons for this are, are different than the conditions that existed when you was alive. But does Newman uh, have any relevance for the church's new effort to sort of reach out to uh, people from the Episcopalian and Anglican faiths, the whole Anglican Quorum, Cheney, whatever? Sure. Um, what he's talking about, I don't know if everybody's familiar with this, but um, a few years ago, uh, the Holy Father um, uh, issued a, an apostolic letter on his own initiative, which um, extended an invitation to people who are uh, in the, uh, the Anglican Communion, so whether it's the Church of England or the Episcopal Church in the United States or, or other um, churches in other countries part of the Anglican Communion, um, who wish to uh, enter into communion with the Catholic Church um, while keeping the traditions 
um, and and the um, the liturgical tradition and the uh, especially the the prayer book um, that's used uh, in in their own church. Right. Um, this is um, it's interesting. It's an interesting question um, to see what what Newman would have thought of this whole thing. Right. Um, because it wasn't an option, obviously, that was open to him at the time, um, but it was something that he struggled with. You know, um, what what this apostolic letter says is that you know if the if if what a person desires is to say you know I I accept the the faith that the church teaches you know I I, I can look at the catechism and I can uh, I can say I I believe what's in the catechism right I can make the profession of faith and say I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches. Um, but my, you know, my, I have a very strong attachment to, to um, the liturgical tradition, which is, which goes back to, in, in many cases, to the, to the, the 16th and 17th century, and, and is, is a very strong and robust liturgical tradition. Um, you know, that, that faith-wise, I'm ready to make this, this uh, I'm ready to come into the church. Um, well, what the Pope is saying is, fine, then, then we'll, we'll make this provision so that um, there's lots of diversity in the way that the church celebrates, right? Um, there's lots of diversity in the eastern part of the church. There's a, there's a historical precedent in the western part of the church where there are different ways of celebrating liturgy in different parts of, of the west. So it's not a problem to have this, um, you know, to have a, a liturgical tradition as long as our, our faith is all together, right? So um, Newman, Newman had his own kind of hesitation. You know, remember I said um, when he, he knew, uh, he kind of knew he had to be thinking about this question, you know. Um, it took him a little bit of time to kind of think it through and, and realize, you know, he needed to really be thinking seriously about becoming Catholic and, and he knew he had to be in the Catholic Church. And then he had some issues about, he wasn't really sure he wanted to be he could embrace kind of all of the ways of expressing Catholic devotion, you know. Um, I'm looking at Elena here. Um, English people are different than Italian people, <laughs> you know. Just like in, in ex, you know, in terms of expression, you know what I mean. Like uh, more reserved, you know. In terms, you know, different different cultures are more are different, you know. And so Newman had seen, you know, these processions on Malta and these. The, you know, the, these, the, he'd read these prayer books, you know, in, in, that he picked up from, from uh, in Italy, and he said, oh, I don't think I'm ready for that, you know. <laughs> and uh, and the, it, was, it wasn't until an, an Irish priest who was a friend of his said, look, what you need to do is, is, is um, you know, agree with the catechism. What you need to do is agree with, with um, you know, what the church teaches about the Blessed Mother, for example, right? Um, if you can accept, you know, the teaching on the Blessed Mother, if you can accept, you know, the basic um, way that we pray, you know, uh, when to honor the, the, the Blessed Mother, you know, things like the Rosary and things like that, you don't need to accept every, you know, every devotion, uh, you know, every procession, you know, it, it doesn't have to be your kind of preference, your taste, you know, that's part of the, the, the wonderful thing about, about the diversity of the Catholic Church, you know, it doesn't have to be your first preference. Um, take the catechism and leave the prayer, leave the leave the devotional books, and you'll be okay. And that settled him down a lot. So, I think he could. Um, I think Newman would um, would appreciate that part of it. Do you know what I mean? Um, in the sense of 
he would he would appreciate the fact that the church was being um, sensitive to people having agreement in faith and then their own attachment to a particular liturgical tradition. On the other hand, Newman did write as a Catholic um, some reflections looking back about the difference between um, the Catholic Mass and what he had celebrated as an Anglican. Remember, he was an Anglican priest for, for you know, over a decade, you know. And he wrote as a Catholic, looking back, you know, about what he perceived as the, the, a big, big difference in terms of, you know, the, the prayers of the Mass related to the, the liturgical prayers of the prayer book. So he would, he might be a little skeptical about whether they were exactly of equal um, stature, at least in his own mind. But I think, I think if he were alive today and watching all this go on, that would be his personal opinion in terms of whether he, where he would go, you know. Um, but I think he would definitely respect the fact that the church was, was making this provision so that people in a similar situation to him could say the same thing and say, I, I, I'm there in terms of faith, I'm not necessarily there in terms of liturgy. So, you know, here's, here's a way to accommodate that. You know? Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, my question is also sort of like, how did the thought of you play that you sort of just that same? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that many people um, who are coming to the Catholic Church from the Anglican Communion, um, they're maybe the, the first step, now I can't speak for their experience, but I think in a lot of cases, um, it seem, just anecdotally, uh, it seems that they, they seem to um, have some connection with Newman, have picked up something that he wrote, or at least that's some part of the, the chain of events that get them there. Yeah, so I think reading what he's writing, they can find, kind of find a kindred spirit there. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So with such a strong emphasis on the knowledge and certitude gained from experience, um, what would you say was um, Newman's view of the university education in the cultivation of, of virtue and of sanctification? So Newman was convinced, the reason that he wanted to have a, a Catholic university, right, he was convinced that you needed to, um, you needed to provide young people with formation in virtue and in theology on a par with the other sciences, right? Uh, because for one thing he said, um, you, if you don't teach theology as a science, if you don't give it its own, if you don't give it the proper stature, um, well, they're going to pick it up anyway, um, but not necessarily in, in an appropriate way, you know. They're going to pick it up in the attitudes of their professors in other subjects. And if you've got good teachers in other subjects who are, who are people of faith, then fine. But if you have people teaching other subjects who are skeptical of the faith or, or antagonistic to the faith, well then, they're going to pick up attitudes about the faith or about theology um, just in the course of things, right? Um, or they're going to pick up the attitude that, um, you know, science is good and religion is not worth learning. You know, or whatever. You know, so so Newman, first of all, in his in his, uh, his writings about the university, said that you know, in order to make mature human, you know, mature people, uh, you had to. They needed theology, right? And they needed to understand uh, theology because God is part of life and God is part of the world, 
if you didn't give it to them as a, as a subject in its own right, they were going to get it otherwise, um, and they were going to get it sometimes in, 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 a, in a manner exactly opposite to the way that they ought to be getting it, right? Um, and what he was saying was, you know, there are certain, um, you know, part of growing up is acquiring virtues, right? Uh, there, there's a certain aspect to the life in the university, life, you know, just learning in general that is going to mature a person, hopefully. You know, I'll talk to your RAs and your, your advisors later and you can tell me, but, you know, there's, there's part, part of the university life and learning, you know, inside and outside the classroom is about maturity. You know, so there's a part in the um, uh, in the his, his essays on the idea of a university, which is kind of known as his definition of a gentleman. You know, he says just learning and maturing make, brings a person to a certain point. You know, just kind of by nature develops certain natural virtues, makes them a natural. It brings a natural refinement. He says, and that's fine to a certain point. You know, in the sense that when you're with other people. Um, you learn not to be antagonistic, you learn um, not to be rude, you learn to, um, you know, to talk nice, you learn to you know, make pleasant conversation, you, there's all these kind of virtues. You learn not to give offense, you learn to be cheerful, you learn to be, uh, you know, not to act like you're wounded, you know, all these kind of things. He said that is not bad, in fact it's helpful for civilization if people mature to that level, right? He said that's fine, for, for civil society, but it doesn't make saints, right? And so, you know, what's necessary is also education in virtue, education in, in discipleship, education in, in vocation, because that's going to take those natural virtues, which are absolutely necessary. You can't replace the basic maturity, right? Um, but you, you have to take it to the next level. You know, he mellowed a lot. You know, I, I mentioned when he was at Oriel College, hey, it's true. Uh, uh, when he was at Oriel College um, and you know tutoring these these gentlemen commoners, um, he really got uh, into their personal lives and you know well they were showing up late for their tutorials and you know snoozing in class and this kind of stuff and he knew why you know and um, he was reporting them to the to the provost and he was giving them a hard time and and they were complaining about him and and they weren't getting along and you know part of it was his zeal and part of it was his youth and inexperience and part of it was, you know, because in that time in his life, um, he was making really sharp distinctions between real Christians and nominal Christians, you know, uh, people that were living the life and people who were faking it, you know. And long years of pastoral work and, you know, dealing with people and I think even as a, as a priest, you know, hearing confessions and, and getting to know himself as well, uh, by the time he was writing about the Catholic University, he was saying about about his uh, about undergraduates. He said, he says young men are led are are better at led than pushed. He said, you know, you teach them more by example than by admonition. And uh, you know, you read that and you think, wait, is this the same guy that was back there? You know, and it is, but but it's he's 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 25 years, 30 years older. And he's been working with real people for a long time, you know, and so you know you had much, you got you would have gotten along much well, much better with Father Newman in Ireland than you would have at Oxford, yeah, um, if you're that kind of person, you know. But uh, you know, it's, uh, but he had a much more realistic idea of of uh, you know how to deal with with uh, college students and with people in general, um, 
in terms of helping them to mature and leading them to those, those uh, Christian virtues. Did I answer your question? about the possibility of, of the sanctification of, of an infant. Um, in the conversation, uh, it was observed that it was taking a very long time. And, and uh, uh, this person mentioned that, um, said something about Newman suffering from depression and said that the church is, is often very hesitant to, that that, that's, that can be a sign of spiritual difficulties or something. And I, I, uh, I wonder about that because I've never seen that spelled out anywhere. And I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Do, do you know anything um, about that? When you started your question, I thought you were going somewhere else with that. Okay. But because um, I've, I've heard other, other suppositions for why it's taking such a long time. Okay. Um, so there were several reasons why, why it took such a long time um, for Newman's cause to get off the ground. First of all, like I said, the, the, the that didn't really get started and, until the, the, the cause wasn't open until 1958. So more than a hundred years, well, more than almost 70 years after his death, right? Um, and the oratories, the way an oratory works, um, we are a religious community, right? Um, but we, we don't operate like other religious communities because of uh, some things that St. Philip decided on. Uh, one of them is that each oratory is independent of the others, right? So we don't have a superior general, we don't have provincials, we don't have, uh, we have each local house is autonomous in the law, right? Um, so it's up to each local house to kind of do its own thing. Um, which means that sometimes oratories move very, very slowly, yeah? So if it's up to the, the individual house to kind of make the decision, then sometimes it takes a while, right? Um, Newman's, Newman also wrote um, more than 40 volumes uh, in his lifetime, uh, wrote 70,000 letters, um, which is like five letters a week for 50 years, I think, something like that. Um, some and not all of which have even all been collected, you know. And when you're going to move somebody's cause, then you have to review everything that the person wrote that you can get your hands on, right? So some of these are very just practical things. Um, but to answer your question, you know, Newman was admittedly a sensitive person, okay? Um, and, you know, it, it shows. I mean, we have, he kept a diary um, pretty much for all of his life from his, his uh, what we would call his high school days, you know. Um, and his, his published letters and diaries now run 33 volumes, okay. Um, and he wrote in his diary almost every day, very frankly, you know. Uh, he wrote letters to his close friends, very frankly. So there's no getting around the, the idea that, that, that things affected him very deeply because we have his own words, you know. In his defense, People misunderstood Newman pretty, pretty uh, deeply, you know. Um, and um, you know, he did the because his story was so much his own story. He didn't please many people. Um, the, you know, he was working in what we call the Oxford movement with um, with some really close friends in the Anglican Church 
who felt when he converted to Catholicism that he had betrayed their mission, you know, and that he had really been kind of a crypto-Catholic all along. He had never been sincere, you know. They didn't understand what he was doing. And so when he became a Catholic, he had, he basically, they, all, his, all his Anglican friends ditched him. The Catholic uh, uh, companions that he made in his early days, um, including the, the Archbishop of Westminster and Father Faber and people like that, tended to be kind of really Catholic, you know, in terms of um, very, very Roman-oriented, very, very Italian in their devotions, not Newman's personality, you know. So he was kind of not Catholic enough for them, too Catholic for his Anglican friends, caught in the middle and really isolated, you know. So, you know, so when you've got somebody who's kind of just working on his own, you know, um, people coming in and out of his house, some of them sticking with him for a long time, um, some of them coming for a while and then leaving, some of them leaving and bad-mouthing him. Um, his closest friends from his days of conversion died very early. Um, you know, um, his supposed friends and co-workers in the hierarchy of the church bad-mouthing him, actually writing letters to Rome behind his back uh, suggesting that he's a heretic. You know, um, one of his, one of his uh, biographers said, you know, he, for him to have done what he did for 10 years and not said anything, uh, you, you'd have to say not that he was thick-skinned, but that he was rhinoceros-hided, you know, <laughs> is how he described it. Um, so I think for him to write frankly in his diary and for him to write, write to his friends, not expecting, you know, 33 volumes of his letters to be published, um, I think is understandable given the circumstances. Like, we look at that in isolation and say, oh, this guy's a whiner. This guy is complaining. I mean, what's wrong with He's always, you know, he's always just, you know, uh, pouring his heart out. Like, he's just got to get a grip. I think given the circumstances, you know, he had some things to complain about, you know. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't get the impression that he was depressed, you know, certainly not from the way that he preached, um, not from, uh, you know, I mean, it didn't, you know, not from, not in, the, not in the clinical sense, anyway. It didn't impair his output of work, you know. Uh, it didn't affect his cheerfulness in terms of how he dealt with people. Um, it didn't, didn't show in, in his preaching, in his writing. Um, you know, it, you see his heart open in his letters and in his diaries, which, you know, I mean, it sounds very facile to say it now that he never thought he'd be a saint. But he really never thought anybody, <laughs> anybody would pay him any mind. Um, you know, he, he never intended his diaries to be published or read by anybody. And he trusted his friends because he had so few of them. Um, and so he, he poured his heart out in these private ways because he didn't want to blow up at people in public. Um, but I don't think that that would say that he was depressed yet. Sure. We have time for one more question. There was somebody back there, I think, before. It was covered in the previous Okay. Any last question before we? Thank you so much. Well, that our last responsibility.